0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I now call this meeting of the Secret Guild of the Dirty Talk Podcast Society to order. Secretary Rain, please read the minutes from our last council.
1: At our last congregation, you gorged yourself on the blood of the lamb while dancing beneath the harvest moon. We then played strip jenga, which you lost.
0: I was put at an unfair disadvantage since I was only wearing an ascot, sock garters, and a Mrs. Potato Head.
1: You were given the choice to change prior to play, and you declined three times.
0: Let us move on to current business. What is on the docket before the council?
1: The next podcast is due in seven days, and we have yet to choose a topic.
0: Have any suggestions been proposed?
1: Well... The topic of sex dolls has been coming up on our weekly, after-hours episodes. Why not do sex dolls?
0: Yes, and I can talk about the Borg Hild Project, the covert Nazi program that created sex dolls for the German troops. Maybe I'll make a fake news reel that goes like, News on the March! Panic from the front. Berlin, Germany, dateline 1940. Reich leader SS Heinrich Himmler sends a frantic message to Adolf Hitler. Topic, the unnecessary losses that the German army had suffered through prostitution in France. The greatest danger in Paris is posed by the wild horse who carry out their dark trade On the street. Syphilis, running wild in the advancing Nazi troops. To fight this worsening scourge, top German scientists are brought on board for the top-secret Borghild project. Its ultimate goal, create a doll to follow the troops into battle, enabling the men to relieve themselves as needed to ensure that the soldiers would fight on and not prowl around seeking foreign women. The project's three stated goals. The synthetic flesh has to feel the same like real flesh. The doll's body should be as agile and movable as the real body. The doll's organ should feel absolutely realistic. Scandal strikes! Disputes over the wantonness of the doll's face and breast shape arise between the SS and Project scientists. The SS favored them round and full, while the scientists insist on a rose-hip form that would grip well. Ultimately, science prevails. Finally, success! The prototype doll is unveiled in Berlin, and Himmler himself was on hand to examine her artificial orifices. Enthusiastically, he immediately orders 50 dolls to be produced. Sadly, the continued fighting on the Eastern Front delays production through budget cuts. The final death blow for the doll was the total destruction of its production facilities by the Allied bombing of Dresden in February 1945. And so the Borghild never sees the light of day. News on the march! Unfortunately, none of which is true and the Borghild project was revealed to be a hoax. Except the Nazi troops did have a syphilis problem, but instead of inventing sex dolls, their solution was to force prisoners of the Third Reich to prostitute themselves in state-run military brothels.
1: Yes, and I can bring up the fact that Barbie dolls were based on the German billed lily doll, a racy novelty doll that was sold in adult toy stores as a novelty gift for men.
0: And then I can throw in how some of the very first historical records of sex dolls are the 17th century sailors sharing dolls called Dames de Voyage, which were made out of cloth, leather, and old clothing, and used for fornication On long sea voyages.
1: After you say that, I will throw in the quote from writer Amy Wolfe that described them as made of cotton and presumably held together with dried cum. The Dame de Voyage was a hotbed of venereal disease. And it is fortunate that no such specimens or even images of such dolls exist today.
0: Will you also mention that Dutch sailors introduced these kinds of sex aids to the Japanese, and the term Dutch wife is still slang for a sex doll in Japan? Of course I will. Excellent. Excellent. Now we just need a narrative structure with which we can convey all the information we have gathered about sex dolls.
1: Well... Movie review podcasts are popular. Why don't we do movie reviews?
0: Elaborate.
1: We can each choose a movie that features a sex doll as a main plot point, and during our review of it, we can weave in all of the interesting facts we have discovered about sex dolls.
0: Genius. So let it be written. So let it be done.
2: We have flipped the commemorative sex doll podcast coin, and it has determined that I will be going first.
1: So it is written, so it is done.
2: The film I chose for this little project was the 1987 comedy action adventure Cherry 2000 starring Melanie Griffith and David Andrews. I haven't seen it since I was probably about 12, but I did see it because I was raised on Bad 80s movies that went straight to video. I know that is not necessarily your forte, though.
1: (laughs) No, it's not.
2: I urge our listeners that if you would like to participate, please pause right now. Go watch the film first because we want to make this a fully inclusive affair. You can find the movie for free on any number of streaming services. We were able to find it and watched it for free. This could be a film you want to pay for, but probably not.
1: (sighs) It's a very ambitious film.
2: It is. So pause now. Don't worry. We will wait. Come back when you're ready and we shall discuss this fine piece of cinema.
1: (laughs) Yes, we're waiting.
2: Okay, we're back and hopefully you have watched the movie and are ready to break it down or you just decided to soldier on and are ready for some spoilers, because spoiler alerts are coming guaranteed. Even though I don't know if there's really a way to spoil this movie.
1: I think that most people that listen to reviews want to have an idea of what's happening. Also, this movie did come out a while ago, so if you don't want it spoiled, uh, it's really not our fault. Nope. You've had some time in the past 20-odd years to watch it. We're going to
2: start with some facts about the film. It originally finished shooting in December of 1985, but Orion Pictures had no idea how to market the movie. I don't blame them because it's a weird conglomeration of genres. It's like Mad Max post-apocalyptic road movie sci-fi quirky comedy love story,
1: I would say. Like I said, it's a very ambitious film. It is indeed all of those things. That's a very apt description, but it's a lot going on in one movie. Yes. They could decide
2: what it was necessarily. And you would think that they would have considered this before they shot the film and dumped $10 million into it. And that's $10 million, 1985. So For comparison, that's about $24.2 million today with inflation.
1: You can tell that there was money put into the movie. There was a lot of detail put on the scenes and the backgrounds, but it was uh, a real mishmash. Uh, It was a hodgepodge. I, I mean, I liked it, but it's a bunch of different genres put in a blender and someone pressed frappe and also threw in millions of dollars
2: but it was like a hodgepodge that wasn't done well because none of those elements were really done very well. It was sci-fi and funny and post-apocalyptic, but none of it was done well at
1: all. Unfortunately, no.
2: They were originally going to release it in the summer of 1986 and then pushed it back to the spring of 87, which was then canceled again.
1: Never a good sign.
2: According to IMDb, its first release was in Austria in November of 1987, and it didn't have its official premiere until the February 1988 Fantasporto Film Festival in Portugal, then it was released a few days later in the U.S. on video only. The film almost never did see the light of day, and it is theorized that the only reason it was eventually released was because... It had Melanie Griffith in it, and she was gaining significant buzz around her new movie Working Girl that came out later in 1988, and she did wind up winning a Golden Globe for that film, and got an Oscar nomination as Best Actress. So I believe that Orion Pictures realized, hey, we have this unreleased movie with her in it, maybe if we just shoot it out there, now that she's gaining some momentum, we can make a buck or two.
1: The movie did not just feature Melanie Griffith, but uh, there was supporting roles with her bosom.
2: (laughs) But you never see full bosom.
1: No, but there's bosom and shadow. She struggles with her zipper a lot. She is bringing uh, young perky cleavage to the table. There's no doubt about it.
2: Surprisingly, the movie didn't really make any money. (gasps)
1: Shocked, I'm shocked, I tell you.
2: Overall, it only made $14,000 at the box office.
1: Oh, that has to
2: sting. But strangely, the soundtrack for the film became a collector's item because it was the debut release for a random mail-order CD club and only 1,500 copies of it were produced. One of the copies of this original soundtrack sold on eBay for the price of $2,500.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: Almost like a uh, seventh of what the box office was.
1: Oh, yeah, that's got a sting.
2: The movie is set in 2017 in a dystopian future Anaheim. Resources are scarce and everything is focused around conservation and recycling. As usual in these 80s post-apocalyptic films, there is no real explanation as to why society has fallen so hard And I believe it's just generally assumed and expected that, of course, in the future, the world's just going to go to shit. Kind of like how we expect it to go to shit today.
1: Right. It's a little spot on. I mean, they're not wrong.
2: This leads me to speculate um, how much we'll get wrong about our current predictions of how things will be in 30 years in the future.
1: I mean, yes, it was unrealistic, but... Generally, when we have movies about the future, we tend to think that things are dystopian and not going well. It's not often you get a movie in the future where it's like, everything's great and peachy keen. No. I mean, after all, we are currently living in the Blade Runner future, I was always anticipating. It gets more like Blade Runner every day.
2: It does. And my hope that in 30 years our alien overlords will make this podcast required listening while we all slave away in the plastic mines. So I want to be the first one here to go on record as saying, Hail Tharsnog. Hail Tharsnog.
1: <laughs> You're choosing sides quickly. I've, Noted.
2: That's You know, turn the turn the belly up as fast as you possibly can. It might get rubbed and you might get some food.
1: Well, that's a technique that my cats employ on the regular and it seems to work for them.
2: I'm going to tell Tharsnog that you were not on board. I am not afraid to point fingers.
1: Throwing me under the bus. I see how it is. Mm -hmm.
2: In the film, they allude to some mysterious border wars at some point, but it isn't clear what borders were even in dispute. So it might have been the Mexican border, but Anaheim is still okay. But Nevada has been turned into a barren wasteland. Or, I mean, at least more of a barren wasteland than it already is today. Sorry, people of Nevada.
1: (laughs) Sorry if it's accurate.
2: The movie begins with recycling center manager Sam Treadwell returning home after a long day at the recycling center to his wife, Cherry. They sit down for dinner and she begins to act really odd. She then gets even more weird during their dinner conversation as he asks who invented Vaseline and she freaks out and goes into the kitchen. Of course, we all know that the inventor of Vaseline was Sir Robert Augustus Chesbro.
1: We all know that, yes. Mm -hmm. Once in
2: the kitchen, she begins to fill the futuristic sink, (laughs) the dome-covered futuristic sink, with soap and water. Sam follows her in to find out what's going on, and then, of course, the two of them begin to make out and fall onto the floor of the kitchen to make love, while the overflowing sink starts spilling out water and soap bubbles around them.
1: Not to be a nitpicker, but I found the scene a little dubious, because there was ever so much soap, and I don't care how much you want to bang someone, when you start to drown in soap suds, I can't help but think that would get your attention. It would. I'm just saying.
2: I think the visuals are there, and sure, it looks interesting and sexy for the visuals, but as a homeowner myself... No matter how passionate and into it I'm getting, if the sink is overflowing and there's soap and water everywhere, I'm going to be worried about like the floorboards getting rotted right. out. I mean, like, I right, wait, hold on. We got to you know put it back in the pants. We got to mop this up because <laughs> I need to take care of this house.
1: As a fellow homeowner, that was my exact takeaway as well.
2: As they continue to go at it in the water, Cherry begins to short circuit And that is when it is revealed that Cherry is, spoiler alert, be careful, a sex robot.
1: Not just any sex robot.
2: No, not just any sex robot. Sex robots are also called gynoids. Did you know that?
1: I did not know that.
2: Yes, the technical term for sex robot is, a well, at least a female sex robot is a gynoid.
1: Huh, okay.
2: And you would think that any owner of a sex robot would know not to get it wet.
1: You would think if I had invested in a sex robot, I certainly would not be getting it wet. Uh, sometimes I can't help but notice that people make illogical decisions in movies and books in order to push the plot
2: forward. It's true. That any owners of sex robots out there, sex robots and gremlins, do not get them wet.
1: Nope. Ends poorly for everybody. It
2: does. You would think it would be one of the first things in the manual for the sex robot was like, hey, <laughs> keep it away from water. But then my other thought about it is like, what's really the point of a sex robot that you can't get wet?
1: Ah, uh, that's a good point. I mean, I guess you're not supposed to be bathing with the sex robot. Uh, surely she has an internal pocket that can be cleaned but you would think that she would be getting wet maybe don't get her head wet
2: maybe it takes water sports off the table
1: yeah no 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 that would not work
2: here's the other thing about 80s movies is that they completely overestimate our futuristic technology in this film civilization has crumbled for the most part even though Anaheim is still plugging right along just okay but the technology is amazing, right? They have these living, walking, talking sex robots. Yes, as of this recording, we are nowhere near having passable realistic sex robots. The closest thing we have is the real doll X, which is basically an animatronic head placed atop a real doll body. It has an AI that you can control through their app, and you can also have conversations with it and it will slowly learn information about you so your interactions can become more personalized. It also has built-in sensors so it can tell when it's being touched, can respond to you, and simulate orgasms while you're having sex with it.
1: Um, that's pretty advanced.
2: Yeah, but it can't move. Besides its head and its face, it can't move at all, and it just... still up to the user to move it around and pose it into whatever position it wants. It can't make you dinner and have deep conversations with you about the inventor of Vaseline.
1: No, that's past its capabilities, but it can say that it loves you and be very acquiescent and horny.
2: It can. And if you want to buy one, the head alone costs $8,000. Um,
1: well, obviously don't get it wet.
2: Yeah, and that's for the head. The body. If you want to add a body, it's an additional four thousand dollars, and that's for the base model. If you want to add any customizations at all, the whole thing can easily be upwards of fifteen k.
1: That's substantial. That's the, the price of a car.
2: It is the price of an entry
1: level car entry level obviously people pay more than 15k for a car but if i'm paying 15k i want a pretty decent car oh yeah just saying
2: either a car or a fully functional sex robot (laughs) right there has been some debate around whether we should have robots for sex in september of 2015 the japanese company softbank the maker of the pepper robot included a ban on robot sex In its user agreement, it states the policy owner must not perform any sexual act or other indecent behavior with the robot.
1: I'm sure that people that sign off on that are going to completely honor that.
2: This is a little uh, confusing, though, because their website does describe Pepper as having a curvy design that ensures danger-free use and a high level of acceptance by users. And it includes... A number of tantalizing pictures of Pepper looking back over its shoulder at you and a close-up of its hand on its curvy hip. If you want to, go to the website and you can see these pictures of Pepper or I will probably post them on Instagram at some point if you want to follow the Dirty Talk podcast Instagram.
1: You do post a lot of cool stuff on that Instagram.
2: A lot of the argument around sex robots and lifelike sex dolls in general is that they primarily resemble women with exaggerated characteristics. If you haven't seen them, they have extremely large breasts, hips, They essentially look kind of like life-size Barbie dolls, wouldn't you say?
1: Uh, yes, that's a very apt description.
2: You can even buy fantasy ones, which look like elves or anything, and even ones with incredibly, incredibly exaggerated characteristics, just unrealistically exaggerated if that's what you're into.
1: If you have the money, you can generally get what you want. So it's believed that these sex
2: robots facilitate a powerful attitude towards women's bodies as commodities. Reinforce the idea that women are property rather than human beings with free will.
1: I could see the argument being made for that, yes.
2: Another argument that people make revolves around a doll called Roxy, who is a sex robot that was unveiled at the AVNs in 2010 and it had the ability to change personalities. One of its many personalities was called Frigid Farrah. It was described as reserved and shy. As the manufacturer stated, if you touch her in a private area, more than likely she will not be appreciative of your advance. Many people believe that this is indulging in rape fantasies and facilitating a rape culture since they are making a sex robot that resists your advances and you have to kind of force yourself upon the sex robot.
1: Honestly, how else can you describe having a sex robot that doesn't want to have sex and resists your advances?
2: But does the sex robot not want to have sex?
1: Mm, Right. I I can see why people would object to that particular setting.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Other people believe that the proliferation of sex robots will facilitate social isolation and that sexual relations with robots will desensitize humans to intimacy and empathy.
1: I mean, I can see the point that people would make with that. It's certainly something that could happen.
2: It is, but I think as with most of these things, it's just an overreaction. Whenever any sort of new technology comes along people tend to have a major overreaction to things. I mean, the internet has brought people together, but it's also divided people because we can now interact with everybody online. And as people move more and more into a distance interaction, I do see that people will start using sex robots or sex dolls uh, more to facilitate some of that interaction that we used to not get in person.
1: True. That is very valid. People have always been trying to design sex dolls. We just never had the technology. If we could have made it sooner, people would have been using them more. The idea of a compliant, human-looking thing that helps you get your rocks off is something we've been looking for forever.
2: Oh, yeah. It goes all the way back to the story of Pygmalion and trying to create the perfect woman in Mm -hmm. in every way. Uh, It's kind of been Mm -hmm. an ideal of men for a long time of just this person that they can control, this mindless sex object that Mm -hmm. will do their every whim. And even the Greeks kind of tried to achieve that by locking all the women away and having a male society and the women were just used to look pretty and have children.
1: Yes. Boy, uh, things sure shifted right after that, didn't it? (laughs) So much different. So it turns out that Cherry,
2: after she short-circuited, isn't new technology at all. She's an antique sex robot.
1: Because dystopian future.
2: Yes, because technology reached some level, then there was the border wars and everything fell apart. I just surmised that she was made in the year 2000, hence her name, Cherry 2000. But that's just a guess because I couldn't find any information on that anywhere. They didn't have any elaboration or backstory for this script.
1: Just go with it. I don't think they they worry too much about the backstory. No.
2: The sex robot mechanic that Sam takes Cherry to says that she is completely fried, but that her memory disk is intact, so he could just take that memory disk out of her and put it into a different model. But Sam does not want a different model. He wants his Cherry. He has his heart set on his love, Cherry.
1: Sam is a romantic, and he cares very deeply, and no other doll will do. This is his love.
2: Yes. Unfortunately, the last remaining Cherry 2000s in the world are in a warehouse in Zone 7, which is a lawless, desolate wasteland deep in Nevada. One of the things that 80s movies always completely missed was the advent of the internet, I mean, in hindsight, I suppose none of us terribly saw it coming and what it would become. But if they had been able to foresee the rise of the internet, Sam wouldn't have had to risk his life out in the Badlands trying to get a replacement fembot. He would have (laughs) pretty much gone online and probably been able to find one on eBay, maybe. But also, like every niche on the internet, there are online communities around sex dolls. One website, the most popular one, is called The Doll Forum, and it has over 30,000 members where enthusiasts can discuss all things sex dolls. They share their pictures in galleries, and they also compete for their doll to make the cover of their own monthly e-zine called Cover Doll. And they have a marketplace to sell used sex dolls, parts, and accessories.
1: Yes, this is correct.
2: Unfortunately, the internet did not exist in this alternate 2017, so he cannot have his replacement cherry delivered right to his front door. He has to venture out into the inhospitable wastelands. But if he was able to order it to his house, the movie would basically have less plot than it already does.
1: There's lots of plot. There's a ton that happens in this movie.
2: After he finds out that his sex robot is completely kaput his friends take him to a singles bar to meet women to cheer him up. And it is when they go to the singles bar that we learn, and it becomes very apparent why Sam prefers a relationship with a robot over one with a real woman. At the singles bar, people show each other highlight reels of their past sexual encounters, and if they are intrigued by what they see, they then track down one of the lawyers like a very young lawrence fishburne who pops up in the film briefly they have these lawyers that hang around in the bar so they can write up a legally binding contract that lays out in minutia what that night's sexual episode will entail
1: down to every lick and finger right so we'll say a dinner complete sexual encounter Optional episode in the morning, right? I got to run this past my own lawyer. To
2: me, this highlights the complications of dating. It's difficult meeting people at these places. So maybe putting a contract in there makes it a little easier. It also kind of like has elements of the 80s litigious society. Back then, everybody started suing everybody for everything. So I guess it's better to have everything completely written down and laid out in legalese before moving forward. And this is when we started seeing the rise in consent and people talking about consent more. Not that they really talked about it too much, but I suppose if you're going to fully consent to something, it's better to have it in a contract than not.
1: I did suspect that the huge focus on lawyers negotiating every single sexual act was based on the time that the script was written because america was going not that we're that much different but we were really exploring the joys of lawsuits at the time
2: this also kind of highlights uh why some men will choose sex dolls as an alternative to dating because it takes a lot of energy to date somebody and it takes time and patience to deal with another living human being, so it's easy just to buy this chunk of plastic that you can keep around the house and have sex with. Exactly. After this bad encounter at the singles bar, Sam decides that he's going to go to Zone 7 and retrieve his lost love, but he needs a tracker to guide him. He travels to the border town of Glory Hole, which is the greatest town name ever. I would love to live in Glory Hole.
1: I get a feeling someone had a lot of fun writing the script.
2: Oh, yes. Glory Hole is only five miles from lawlessness because he passes a sign on the way to Glory Hole that says Glory Hole 10 miles, law ends 15 miles. So it thankfully, he's within that five mile buffer of law. So he goes to Glory Hole to find a tracker. He gets a room at the Glory Hole Hotel, which is not only a hotel, but also a sex robot brothel. And we also learn, as he's checking into the hotel, that in the future, cats will be raised inside water cooler jugs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they did indeed have a live cat inside a water cooler jugger, and they were feeding it. And uh, I really liked the cat. I was a little worried for it, I'll be honest.
2: It looked like it lived a good life inside that water cooler jug. Mm -hmm. Were you aware that sex doll brothels are a real thing?
1: Yes, I am aware.
2: But for our listeners who are not aware, sex doll brothels are a real thing and they have been popping up all over the world. A sex doll brothel in Prague even incorporates VR goggles into the service to provide what they call the most immersive experience possible. One sex doll brothel owner in Brussels shut down the brothel he had created in his living room because the business got too successful and his enthusiasm for it ended. Essentially, he got tired of waiting around the house in the other room while random men (sighs) (laughs) would rent his living room for an hour at a time to have sex with his dolls, which I can imagine would get tiresome after a little while.
1: I mean, that would put a crimp if you're hiding in the other room waiting for someone to finish fucking something in your living room. But yeah, I. he probably should have gotten a bigger place before he opened up a brothel.
2: He didn't realize how successful it was going to be. It shut down after two years. Thankfully, he was able to sell all the used sex dolls online. Unfortunately, though, a lot of brothels in places like the UK, Italy, Barcelona, Paris, and Toronto have been shut down or are under the threat of being shut down because local authorities and concerned citizens are afraid of everything from sanitation issues in the brothels and contributing to violence against women because these are places that men can act out their rape fantasies, as we've said before, is one of people's real issues with this sort of sexual encounter. One brothel was going to open up in Houston back in 2018 after having their lawyers thoroughly check all the local ordinances to ensure that there were no laws against such a service and such a business in Houston. However, the attempted opening caused a huge uproar in the city. An organization started a change.org petition against it, and some prominent citizens made statements like, A business like this would continue to open up doors for sexual desires and cause confusion and destruction to our younger generation. And my personal favorite. In Ephesians 5.31, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall become one. It doesn't say that a man shall leave his mother and father and go and join a robot. (sighs)
1: But it also doesn't say that that doesn't happen.
2: Yeah, there's nothing in the Bible specifically about not having sex with inanimate objects. Is there?
1: Uh, not that I recall, but, um... Yeah, inanimate objects? Yeah, I don't think so.
2: I have to look it up. If anybody listening knows the answer to that, please let us know. As far as I know, there is no mention of sex dolls in the Bible. But it would be great if there was. Ultimately, the Houston City Council passed a law that banned people from having sex with anthropomorphic objects in any place of business. Sorry to those who live in Houston, but you cannot fuck a sex doll in a downtown shop.
1: You are out of luck, my friends.
2: One company in Vancouver was able to skirt some of the local laws by offering a rental delivery service right to your door if you want to rent a sex doll for a couple of hours or for an overnight i
1: i mean so you're offloading something that basically looks like a body and i imagine being the delivery person for the sex doll offloader and picker upper and there's some dude waiting in his house and the neighbors are like what's the large body size package being delivered and then the guy comes back a couple hours later and picks up a, a used uh that's got to be an interesting job if any of our listeners have ever had the job of being a sex toy renter deliverer (laughs) distributor please let us know we would love to hear from you we have questions
2: inquiring minds want to know yes in the town of glory hole sam is able to hire the services of one e johnson tracker who to his surprise turns out to be a surly
1: i'm e johnson you're not going to find anybody better than me, mister. Melanie Griffith. Yes. Not giving her the best acting of her life.
2: It's, uh... Yeah, I would say that she does go on to deliver a horribly wooden performance. Uh, basically, like, it's kind of like she was given the lines just, like, moments before she was about to say them.
1: The first half of the movie, all of her lines are delivered in a very quiet monotone.
2: Yes, She was, I think, supposed to be some sort of Snake Pliskin type character, like a female Snake Pliskin.
1: Yeah, I could see where they'd be going for that. Yeah.
2: So, as bad as her performance was, I was surprised to see that Variety Magazine in 1987 stated that Cherry 2000's greatest asset is top billed Melanie Griffith, who lifts the material whenever she's on screen. I don't know if they're um, watching the same film.
1: Let's agree to disagree with that one.
2: I, I think, in your mind, uh, the best asset is what's on Melanie Griffith's top.
1: I don't think it was accidental that they made sure to feature that in the script.
2: Yes, the material definitely did need lifting.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: I will give it to Melanie Griffith's credit because she rallied for the role. Her first son was born 3 weeks before filming began and she was breastfeeding him the whole time while on set.
1: <gasps> that explains the boobs.
2: So her glorious breastfeeding boobs.
1: They were they were very gravity defying.
2: Mhm. It was in her contract that she had to have the baby by September 9th or her role would be recast. Thankfully she was able to squeeze out her son just a couple weeks early on August 22nd. Like I theorized before, I don't think without Melanie Griffith in this movie, it would have ever seen the light of day. So thankfully for her having her son on time, we now have this glorious film, which is Cherry 2000. (sighs) Melanie has the craziest souped up, rocket propelled Mustang I've ever seen. It has more switches than most jet fighters. And her and Sam take off into the desert in her rocket Mustang. And here's where the plot of the film gets completely convoluted, if it wasn't convoluted before. To get to Zone 7, they have to cross the Colorado River at the Hoover Dam. But the Hoover Dam is guarded by the henchmen of Lester, the New Age spiritualist warlord that controls Zone 7. During the attempted crossing, the Mustang gets lifted into the air by a giant magnetic crane and an all-out mid-air rocket launcher shootout commences.
1: Now, I just want to say that watching the movie was worth it for the rocket launcher shootout alone. When you mentioned the budget and you're like, how did this thing cost $10 million when it was made— because I feel that someone was like, "You know what we should do, man? We should talk." Everybody's got rocket rock- launchers. I have never before or since seen a rocket launcher shoot out, and I am a better person, I think, for having gotten to enjoy that. Yes, it looked like they blew up an entire cliff. Yeah, a a rock mound, a, a large. It, it they spared no expense with these rocket launchers.
2: I think that's where the ten million dollars went. It was like we're just going to head out into the Nevada desert. With a bunch of rocket launchers, it just blows some shit up. And that's that's pretty much where the budget of the film went. Yes. And I can honestly say that I've never seen a rocket launcher battle in a movie before or since.
1: From a suspended car.
2: Yes, the car dangling <laughs> in the midair. Mm-hmm. And the Mustang is like nigh indestructible because it takes a direct RPG hit and is completely undamaged. <laughs>
1: It's fine. It was a scratch. Oh, yeah. I Rub some dirt in it and it walked it off.
2: This car is amazing. After the fight, they shoot the crane operator and then he falls on to the switch and the car is lowered into a spillway tunnel and they have to jump and slide down the tunnel into the river. And mind you, this is supposedly all part of her plan to get across the river,
1: right? She knew it was up. She had everything figured out. Yes. Oh, yeah.
2: They slide down the tunnel into the river and they are met by a man named Six Finger Jake, who everyone up to this point has thought is dead. And he may or may not be Melanie Griffith slash E. Johnson's uncle. He takes them to his cave hideout, which is full of thousands of looted toaster ovens.
1: He does have a pretty impressive toaster oven stockpile, it's true.
2: And he teaches us that you can cook a snake in a toaster oven.
1: The more you know.
2: Later, when they go back to get the Mustang, they are ambushed by Lester's men, and Sam is knocked unconscious. He then wakes up in a desert resort consisting of pretty much a swimming pool and a bunch of geodesic domes called Sky Ranch. And for some weird twists of plot, this ex-girlfriend... Of his is there and is now living with Lester at this headquarters in the desert.
1: And she seems pretty cheerful, I have to say. Like, she seems like she's done some growth and she's really happy with where she's at.
2: Oh, She does. She's a very relaxing lifestyle that she has just hanging out in the desert at Lester's resort. Lester and his gang then show up and they all look like a bunch of new wave golfers in pastel leisure shirts and shorts. <laughs> They're all very, very comfortable lounge lounge attire. Lester then goes on to explain that they are all about growth. They're into living healthy, exercising, eating right, and they enjoy doing the hokey-pokey in the evening.
1: It's very important to eat right.
2: It yes. is very he, important to He's eat a light. big believer. And I'm glad that he's just more of a spiritually advanced bad guy. Lester wants the cherry memory disk that Sam has, but Sam left it back at the dam with Melanie Griffith and Six-Fingered Jake. Apparently, the Cherry 2000 is a very valuable vintage sex robot, and throughout the whole film, people are trying to get the memory disc from Sam.
1: Because, as it turns out, the love of Sam's life isn't just a sex robot. She is the ultimate nymphomaniac, insatiable, octopus, endlessly compliant sex robot of everybody's dreams.
2: She is like the Cadillac of sex robots, I would say. Yes. Later that night, Melanie Griffith and Six-Finger Jake show up and they help Sam escape and set part of Lester's hideout on fire. They then decide to split up and they're going to rendezvous at Snappy Tom's place. Needless to say, Lester is very angry at having his compound blown up and partly burnt down, especially his apiary, because all the bees escape.
1: Those bees, man. (laughs) You gotta watch out (laughs) for those bees. He told him to watch out for the bees. He did. He There was warned. Yeah, he did warn him.
0: Let's watch out for the bees!
2: He gathers his men together to go and track them down out in the desert. But first, Sam's ex-girlfriend, who used to be known as Elaine, but now goes by Ginger, decides that she needs to make a bunch of sandwiches before they all head out.
1: She's a woman who believes in the power of a good sandwich.
2: Yes, she is. And now, while they were on the run and on their way to Snappy Tom's house, uh, Sam and E. Johnson, a.k.a. Melanie Griffith, start realizing that they're having feelings for each other, even though up to (gasps) this point, there's been no chemistry between them whatsoever in the movie.
1: Zero. It's an unexpected turn that I can't say I was totally sold on the delivery, but that is uh, what ends up happening.
2: Oh, yes. Now they have the feels for each other, and they almost get it on on the hood of the Mustang. But Sam has been carrying around this portable player that he's been keeping Cherry's disc in to listen to her voice once in a while. And as they're about to get hot and heavy on the hood of the Mustang... It accidentally gets activated and they hear Cherry's voice come out of it. And then it reminds them that the whole reason why they're out there in the first place in the middle of the desert getting hunted by these spiritualist bad guy warlords is because he's there to get a replacement sex doll. They finally arrive at Snappy Tom's, who then betrays them and tells Lester that they are there. But they manage to escape in an airplane right as Lester and his men arrive, but... Unfortunately, 6 Finger Jake gets killed by the old gun in an oven mitt trick. They fly to the warehouse, which turns out is the ruins of Las Vegas, and as they are looking for the replacement Cherry, Lester and his men show up. They finally find the Cherry, they put the memory disk in, but at this point we're reminded by how useless Cherry actually is, because as Lester's men are shooting at them, she just runs around going, Wee!
1: <laughs> I love this ride! Wee! She brings uh, enthusiasm and a body to the table, um, not so much in terms of conversation or survival skills.
2: No, not so much. They finally make it back to the airplane with everyone shooting at each other. And you think that Lester is dead because he gets shot multiple times by an Uzi and then falls through a
1: skylight, but, spoiler spoiler alert, he's fine. The thing is, Lester eats well, and he exercises, and he takes care of himself. He's very mentally
2: and spiritually centered, I believe that's why. The plane can't take off because they're too heavy, so Melanie Griffith decides to bail out, but... Then Sam realizes that he's now in love with her instead of Cherry. So he lands the plane and sends Cherry off to find him a Pepsi and goes back to get Melanie. He finds her and they take off again in the airplane. But Lester grabs on to the bottom of the airplane by a rope and is finally killed when he runs into the tits of a Las Vegas showgirl statue.
1: That is arbitrarily just at dangling airplane height in the middle of the desert. Yep. It would be what is known as just desserts.
2: He did get his comeuppance. Yes. I would say there was a lot of great quotes in this movie, but my favorite quote from the film happens right after Lester dies. Ginger, what are we going to do now? You guys want some sandwiches?
0: Lester's dead. Well, no sandwich for him.
2: Well, no sandwiches for him. Sandwiches
1: for him.
0: (laughs) the,
2: The movie is full of great dialogue like that. And that is when we see Sam and Melanie Griffith flying off into the sunset together. He went out into the desert to find a replacement robot lover. And he didn't realize he was going to find love in the arms of a real woman. The End. The End. I will have you know that this movie was shown at Harvard, part of their Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study film series. It was shown back in 2015, and their reasoning for it was because it raises complex questions about gender roles, sexual commodification, and emotional intimacy between men and women.
1: Um, okay. Uh, I mean, I could see where it would spark a line of dialogue like that.
2: You could I mean, kind of shoehorn in it there, I
1: guess. No, I think it's more than shoehorning. I mean, I think that underneath the, the funny plot and the epic rocket launcher shootout with a dangling car, that is an underlying topic. The uncertainty of male-female relations where everyone else is in a bar with a lawyer negotiating each sex act down to the lick. I could see the point. Yeah. You can make anything a topic of discussion and study if you, if you squint at it hard enough.
2: It's true. The producer of the film, I believe, would agree with Harvard because when he talked about it long, long ago, he was quoted as saying, it makes a statement, a positive statement about love. <laughs> and isn't that what we've all just been looking for all along? Yes. Final thoughts on Cherry 2000?
1: I... Felt bad for the
2: cat. You <laughs> felt bad for the cat in the jug? Yes. I will tell you with 100% certainty that that cat was never, it, no, I understand. He's never harmed. Just, it, it was not raised in that jug.
1: It looked a little claustrophobic and muggy.
2: I'm sure it's they insane. took it out of the jug right after that scene.
1: I, I don't understand. Yeah, no, no, I understand. I'm certain the cat was fine. And I, I just, uh, yeah, that was my thoughts about the cat.
2: I am proposing that we come up with a film rating system. I know jaunty salutes are a big part of our After Hours podcast. You give us a jaunty salute at the end. So I want to give this movie one jaunty salute. It It is a jaunty salute. Would you give this movie a jaunty salute as well?
1: Uh, based on the rocket launcher shootout, most certainly. And the bees.
2: And the bees. And
1: the sandwiches.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. Overall, it's it's enjoyable. Don't expect too much. But if you like what you've heard here and you didn't take the time to pause and watch the movie before we discussed it, go check it out. And now, a word from our sponsor. Previously on Dirty Talk, After Hours. Hours. Yeah, You ready for this final volley? I'm ready. All right, let's, let's do, do it. it. All right, hunker down. Oh, shit, it looks like they're regrouping. Uh, What are they doing over there? Oh, crap! uh, Incoming! Ah. After Hours. Available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning. Hey everybody, this is Chris. And Rain. And if you do want to join us for the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, we would love to have you along. It's a weekly podcast that we do on Patreon. Go to patreon.com backslash dirty talk podcast and we'll give you an earful each and every Monday morning.
1: Both of your ears full.
2: Yes. Two ears full every Monday morning. Sometimes we go on adventures. Sometimes we talk about the weird news of the day.
1: It's a never ending party, my friends. Join (laughs) us.
2: So if you want to support this podcast and encourage us to keep doing the awesome job we're doing and get bonus episodes every week, go to patreon.com backslash duty talk podcast.
1: See you all there. We each chose to watch a movie in order to do a review for this podcast. And I chose a movie that... Also features a sextal, but it is a very different movie. I chose Lars and the Real Girl. This is a movie that I have been wanting to see for years. It's been on my to watch list. I'm actually kind of surprised at how fast time goes by because I remember when it came out and I said to myself, I definitely want to watch that movie. <laughs> it's been 13 years. Lars and the Real Girl came out in 2007, so it's been on my to-watch list for 13 years. I am super grateful that because of the podcast, I finally sat down and got a chance to watch this movie. It features Ryan Gosling acting his ass off. Say what you want about Ryan. The man can act. Cherry 2000 is very cheerful. It's very bright. There is a lot of Very broad acting, a lot of (laughs) chewing on the scenery.
2: You're very kind to it.
1: (laughs) And Lars and the real girl are a completely different vibe. It is serious acting, just very serious. It's very cold, it's very wintry. Um, Lars is... I didn't quite catch if he's supposed to be autistic or not. He obviously has some trauma. He is living in the garage behind his parents' house, and inside his parents' house, his brother and his sister-in-law live. And just like I said that one of the things that I find that can be a little implausible in movies is when people act in ways that don't seem particularly realistic in order to propel the plot forward. And in Cherry 2000, he's banging an expensive antique, supposedly love-of-his-life sex doll in water which seemed unrealistic, and in Lars and the Real Girl, Lars's sister-in-law is incredibly dedicated to getting Lars out of the garage, coming to dinner, interacting with him. In fact, the entire town seems to think Lars is awesome and they want to hang out with him, and Lars doesn't want anything to do with anybody. He gets hit on. The whole town wants to set him up with dates. They're very concerned about his sex life and his romantic life, In a way that really only small towns can be when there's not much else going on. And you see how much everyone is trying to get this man to interact. And you see how cripplingly shy he is. And one day he goes to work. And his co-worker is on the internet checking out sex dolls. And Lars seems not interested and he goes back to work. And the very next thing you know, he has ordered a sex doll. And it is delivered to his garage... And it immediately changes his character. All of a sudden, he is available for dinner for his brother and sister-in-law, and he asks if he can bring his fiancée. One of the things that I did notice is that the second the sex doll was introduced, it completely seems to change Lars's personality. And, again, in the way that only... A small town could do, I guess. Everybody just decides to go along with it. The whole town ends up adopting Lars's fiance, this sex doll named Bianca. Lars is a is a very religious man, and even though Bianca is a sex doll, she's also a missionary, and they will not be sleeping in the same room before the marriage. So he asks if he can put up his fiance in the main house. And the brother and sister-in-law go for it. And one of my favorite parts in the movie is the second the sister-in-law is alone in the room with the doll, she checks under the skirt. And it is indeed uh, fully functioning. Mm-hmm. I don't blame her. What I would, too. I would be like,
2: curious. I would I would
1: check it out. I'd give it a grope. <laughs> what's, what's going on under the hood? I, how is this whole thing set up? What I love is that the whole town ends up projecting their own concepts onto Bianca. She's everything for everyone. She reads for children at the library. She joins the school board. She gets a part-time job. She goes to church. She becomes completely liked by the entire town. And perhaps predictably, because she is a comfort blanket for Lars, he ends up not needing her and doing growth that he had to do with past childhood trauma. And Bianca ends up dying and he has to mourn her death. And the movie concludes with him getting in a relationship or attempting starting a relationship with a real life human, just like with Cherry 2000. A, I'm really glad that I got a chance to watch this movie. And B, it really made me think a lot about sex dolls and the concept of loneliness and the concept of security and the the concept of not feeling comfortable around other people one of the plot points in this movie is that Lars can't stand to be touched it gives him extreme anxiety but he's comfortable touching something that isn't alive i can't help but think that for some of the people that have sex dolls or get into the sex doll community They can feel safer and more secure around a sex doll. Autistic people can be adverse to touch. And who's to say that a sex doll doesn't, A, give them some companionship and loneliness and doesn't trigger the touch sensitivity that an autistic person would have with another human. Deeper than that, what I really started looking into when I started doing my research was loneliness. All of us struggle with loneliness in some way, and not that long ago I was having a conversation with a man, and our conversation ended up taking a really interesting turn, and he explained to me that it's not so much that men are single-mindedly focused on sex to the exclusion of everything else, it's that men are not given many options to connect with other people outside of sex. They have fighting, fucking, and sports. And that's pretty much it. And their children and, I guess, pets. Femme-presenting individuals in our society have the privilege of being emotionally vulnerable, they have much easier access to touch, and they have a broader support structure. Men do not typically have those options. Chris, you're a man, right?
2: Last I checked, I believe so.
1: Do you think that men use sex as a way to connect with others because they aren't typically given the tools to do it in other ways?
2: I would agree. There's not a whole lot of touch in men's lives. I've gotten more since I've had a child because I can give my daughter hugs and I can cuddle with her. But most of the touch that I've experienced has either come through sexual interactions with people, or playing sports, or fighting.
1: Mm. Hmm. Listeners, I am curious because this is a concept that I've been mulling around in my head for a while. I've mentioned it briefly in articles and uh, previous podcasts. It's a theme I keep coming back to. I am curious because I know that we have European listeners, and I don't know if... This theory is mainly based on my American knowledge base. Men, listeners, if you want to respond, do you feel that your main opportunities for touch are fighting, fucking, and sports? If so, uh, let us know. And if not, let us know what you feel your other options are because I I really am curious. It's been a research point that I've had for years now. I'm trying to gather more data. When I went deeper into research research, What I was really taken with is that sex dolls are becoming more advanced by the day, and we have current models that can remember their owner's favorite food, film, music. Uh, Like you'd mentioned, there's dolls with sensors that's gonna be able to tell when it's being jostled around or respond to foreplay, which I guess would just be touching so the sensors in the doll know that you don't go straight to inserting tab A in slot B. Uh, And they can have an orgasm if you give them enough foreplay. It's not just the super advanced fuckbots that really got my attention, though. You'd mentioned going into the sex doll community. And I did a deep dive in research into the sex doll community. It's a lot more advanced and involved than I think the average person would realize. As you probably noticed when you were checking out the forums, too, right?
2: Yeah, it definitely has its own subculture.
1: As any enthusiasts of any topic gather together, and they have this thing they're really passionate about, and people that own sex dolls are incredibly passionate about it. These forums, you know, sure, you got, like, repairs and and buying individual parts, and what do I have to do to to fix it? But, as we'd mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, where the original uh, template for the Barbie doll was actually a novelty toy sold for adult men in novelty shops... The forums are kind of like guys playing with giant dolls. They're talking about hair, makeup, outfits, grooming tips. Men are typically not allowed to play with dolls. They're shamed for it. Like, you get G.I. Joes and stuff. But it was a lot of guys really enjoying playing dress-up in a way that had a lot of enthusiasm past, I want this thing to look cool before I put my dick into it. It's more than just... Eerily still faces in provocative poses. There is romance. It's true that photo shoots are mainly provocative and look at this hot doll doing cool, sexy things, but men are assigning names, personalities, backstories to their dolls. They share stories of candlelit dates. They discuss feelings of love and. Men will even marry their sex dolls and have photos to prove it. They will do an entire official marriage. And in fact, sometimes as they are exchanging vows, there is a doll maid of honor, which makes me wonder if you have multiple dolls and you're only marrying one, the other dolls don't have as warm a place in your heart.
2: Do they get jealous? Do the sex dolls get jealous of each other? Do they catty?
1: I'm w- wondering if they do get catty and fight over their owner's attention or if the maid of honor joined the husband and wife on their wedding night in a threesome.
2: Mm-hmm. Possibly there's some group sex going on there. What you did mention with the, the background stories, one of the things that struck me first about Lars and the real girl is this completely elaborate backstory that he had already created in his head as to how she was Brazilian- and she had this whole life that she had lived before, and she was also sick, so she couldn't walk, and they had to push her around in a wheelchair all the time. So he had this fanciful, fanciful, full life that he had planned out for her previously.
1: Right. He had her backstory the night that she'd gotten delivered, and I saw that repeated time and time again in these forums, where it wasn't just, this is a compliant, three-hole, flawless body for me to do what I want with. But men do want the backstory. They want her name. They want to know her life. They want romance. They want more of a connection than society seems to typically attribute to the supposed narrow-minded focus of men's desires and urges. In 2016, a study published in the Journal of Sex Research surveyed straight men and long-term heterosexual relationships about what elicited their desire and found that key factors included feeling desired and intimate communication. Men don't often get to feel desired. Women have all of the focus of desire put on them and men get relegated to being the pursuer. Men want to feel desired. They want to feel sexy Uh, The experience of rejection and a lack of emotional connection notably decreased their interest in sexual intimacy. And the researchers concluded that men's sexual desires may be more complex and relational than previously thought. You had mentioned Real Doll previously. We both found it in the course of doing our research for this podcast because it is currently the most advanced because of the A.I. concept that they're building in.
2: And the materials and just how they've been able... I haven't felt one myself in person, but they are doing something to try and make them feel as lifelike as possible.
1: I teach multiple classes, and one of the classes that I teach is a strap-on-play class. And the work that they can do with dildos these days... It still doesn't feel like flesh, but it has gotten surprisingly close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we keep improving the technology all the time.
2: And that is what I kept seeing on these forums when guys would talk about it, is that the real dolls are basically the gold standard currently. You can get these cheap ones from China, made from TPE. But if you really are into it and you're willing to drop thousands of dollars, that's the way to go.
1: I would think, I, I preach this point in my classes all the time, it's worth investing in quality sex toys. You are not going to get as much out of it with a cheap toy. We all start with cheap toys when we begin. And eventually you realize that the cheap stuff is not worth the quick hit of having the thing. It's it's worth investing in your sex toys, folks. Whether it's a high-quality dildo or a $15,000 real doll, you're going to appreciate taking the time to get the quality. As you'd mentioned with your review, these AI dolls are out. They have a moving mouth, and it works like a Tamagotchi if you fail to interact with it, the program's social meter declines and a love meter rises if you give the AI compliments and express emotions like mentioning that you enjoy spending time with her.
2: Really? Yes. Wow, I didn't... Yeah, my research didn't go that in depth into them. That's that's impressive. So it's kind of training people how to interact with another living thing.
1: Yes. According to the creator... The decision to do so was a moral one. He wants to teach people how to be better humans. He said, We want to be able to stimulate the kindness and the legwork that goes into building a connection. With the robot, you can be yourself and just see how it goes. He describes building a relationship with the robot as a safe zone. His decision to focus on Building this connection was a result of what he learned about his customer base. They crave a bond, which is what I noticed in these forums, is that the people that have these dolls do crave the bond.
2: Yeah. One of the recent posts I saw on somebody selling, they were selling one of these heads, um, not the whole body, but like I said, the head itself costs $8,000. They were selling it on the forum, and the guy said that he didn't want to get rid of it at all, that it was the pinnacle of the experience, and that it was the most immersive thing he'd found so far. But unfortunately, he had fallen on hard times, and he needed the money, so he was Mm -hmm. having to sell the AI head, but he desperately wanted to keep it.
1: Oh, it's like everyone wanting the chip for Cherry 2000. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, that's heavy. The creator of this AI is quoted as saying, This is about the mental and emotional interactions that we have with each other. The things that lead up to sex are deeper than just the physical act itself. It's easy to dismiss sex dolls as very expensive masturbation devices. But anything past a superficial glance shows that they are so much more than that. I can't weigh in on the moral issues, say that they're creating unrealistic standards for human women or allowing men to hide in the comfort of an always compliant partner and not challenge themselves for the complex stickiness that a relationship between two people often is. I don't have a dog in the race when it comes to that. What I do understand is just how challenging loneliness can be. Humans are not well-designed for solitude. Men are not exclusively wired for sex to the exclusion of all else. Men get lonely, too. Men want company, and even, yes, romance. Lars and the Real Girl ends with Lars no longer needing the comfort blanket of Bianca and gaining the skills to move on to a relationship with another human. It's a feel-good ending, just like with Cherry 2000 different, very different feel-good ending, but... I
2: guess it's a feel-good ending. A bunch of people die just because this guy wants to go get a replacement sex toy.
1: To be fair, in Cherry 2000, human life is a bit cheap, and people seem a little more casual with it. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to get super invested in uh, people's lifespan. Nah. We didn't know really much of the character's backstories. But in the end, he puts aside the cheap comfort of a robot and goes for the complex relationship of interacting with another human. What I enjoyed the most about Lars and the Real Girl was the movie's unwavering commitment to examine the pain and terror of loneliness without blinking. Well, that and when the sister-in-law looked under Bianca's skirt at the very first moment she had an opportunity. (laughs) I also liked that.
2: Okay. Because that spoke to real life.
1: That spoke to real life to me. Her, the sister-in-law's deep dedication to coax Lars out of the garage and have him come by for dinner seemed, I don't know that I've ever had anyone that I wasn't having sex with be that committed to interacting with me despite being rejected over and over and over again. Um, she cared deeply about Lars. The whole town did. I, I found... One of the points in the movie where the whole town just starts to go along with it, and the more they go along with it, the more into it they get, and the more she becomes adopted by the whole town. And at one point when Bianca gets sick, she is hauled away in an ambulance to the hospital, and she is dramatically brought into the ER, and Lars is told that he can't come with her, and... I kind of had to call bullshit. I know it's a small town and it's a small hospital. Maybe they don't have a lot going on, but that's, whose insurance is paying for that? The whole <laughs> hospital went along for funsies and they're like, we're going to give up a hospital bed to put this sex doll in it because Lars, who is the broken dude about town, is claiming that she's sick and dying and we're just going to do it as a favor.
2: Is that where to hit the wall of believability for you? Really?
1: Yes, yes. The, the, ho- the hospital scene is where I started to... Here's the thing. what somebody the,
2: think of the copay?
1: Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I, that's exactly, my objection is that they were not considering the copay. It, it could only work in an incredibly small town where, where everybody knows each other and everybody cares for Lars because he's super hot and everyone feels bad for him because he had a rough childhood. But I struggled with the idea of an entire ER going along with giving up a Bed to a sex doll
2: so would you give lars and the real girl a jaunty salute
1: i would give it more than one jaunty salute
2: would you give it an enthusiastic jaunty salute yes i would excellent excellent i would give lars and the real girl a jaunty salute as well go out and check it out i know you didn't want to reveal too much of the plot of the film I, in case people did want to go if they didn't pause and go and watch it before we started talking about it i figured cherry 2000 <laughs> take it or leave it doesn't really matter how much you know about it going in
1: right i i uh between the two i enjoyed both of them i deliberately chose not to give away as much of the plot so if anyone is listening to this podcast and they haven't had a chance to check it out It's actually a really well-done movie, and it's one that I had always wanted to see, and I'm glad that I did. There's a lot more that happens with the plot, but you're going to have to go watch it and and check it out if you want to. Yes.
2: I have been wanting to watch the movie as well. I'm a big movie buff, and I had seen it pop up on my radar a long time ago. It actually made the very first Hollywood blacklist. For those of you who don't know, every year there is this thing... Called the Blacklist that comes out in December, and it started randomly back in two thousand and five when a guy named Franklin Leonard was working as a development executive for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. And one of the worst jobs that there is to do in Hollywood because essentially what your job is is looking at hundreds and hundreds of scripts, and most of them are complete and utter garbage and you were just praying to find that one jewel in the pile. And his big innovation was that one weekend, he emailed 75 different connections that he had that essentially did the same job and asked them to name the 10 best unproduced screenplays they had read that year. And he was going to compile them all and then rank them based on the number of mentions that each person is given. This had never been done before. And when it came back, he shared the list. And Lars and the Real Girl made the top five of that list. The other movies that year, the very first one, Things We Lost in the Fire, which was a huge critical success. Juno was number two. Lars and the Real Girl came in at number three. And Charlie Wilson's War came in at five. So Pretty much all these movies came out to be really big successes, and it launched this blacklist, and people look forward to it every year because pretty much it guarantees if your movie makes it on the blacklist, it'll probably get made, and it will probably turn into some either critical success or commercial success as well.
1: I didn't actually know about the blacklist until you mentioned it in regards to Lars and The Real Girl, and I found that fascinating. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, example of crowdsourcing where sometimes the crowd at large has more knowledge than one single individual can have
1: i'm a huge believer in the power of crowdsourcing yes
2: there you have it our reviews go watch some cherry 2000 and lars and the real girl if you have a chance i want to thank you for joining us once again for another dirty talk podcast And if you would like to join us for our Dirty Talk After Hours, we have those every week. They come out on Monday mornings, and we always do a podcast follow-up episode on the Dirty Talk After Hours. So for this podcast follow-up episode, we are going to be reviewing the classic 80s film Mannequin.
1: (laughs) Which I uh, haven't seen yet.
2: And I haven't seen it since I was probably 11. So I'm looking forward to revisiting Mannequin. Join us on Patreon for the Dirty Talk After Hours every Monday. Follow us on all the social medias. We are Dirty Talk Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're everywhere. Yes, all the good places. And lastly, we want to thank our honorary producer.
1: Rolf Hansen and his wives.
2: Thank you so much, Rolf. You guys are amazing. We invite everybody listening now to come and become an honorary producer as well and join our producer circle.
1: It's a a very exclusive club of cool kids.
2: Mm -hmm. I do want to request that if anybody is listening to this 30 years in the future, I have no idea what the future is going to look like, but if civilization is still around, please tell my grandchildren that the gold and my will are buried under the stick in the garden. That is the big stick in the garden. That is very self-explanatory, so let them know in case they are wondering.
1: That's thoughtful of you to line that up for them.
2: I'm always looking out. Always looking out for my progeny. Yes. Thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next time.
1: Over and out, my friends. We will catch you either next month or next week, depending. Yeah. One jaunty salute coming your way.
2: Boom.